Good morning, church family. Thank you for joining us wherever you are, wherever the Lord has you this morning. As we continue in our Pioneer series, Entering into Uncertain Times. Some of us are entering into uncertain weather, it seems like. And so uh, there's that buzz in the air. If you're not in the Northeast, that's one of the things that we are concentrating on this Sunday. But uh, we're entering into new territory in life. And uh, that's what this Pioneers series has been about, just encouraging us to walk into whatever uncertainty we have in great faithfulness to God. And so our Pioneer series, The Acts of Faith, is continuing. I trust it's been a blessing to you. If you've been following with our series, each week I try to open up with a pioneer. Uh, This one from Christianity Today, I'm reading um, some of the best quotes you'll ever hear from an individual. Um, It it leads us to a story where there's a group of leaders gathered together in the late 1700s, and a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. Yes, they had to argue for that. We really ought to go overseas with missions. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down, you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Enthusiasts were those who were following the revival that was occurring in the Great Awakening, and they were often kind of sequestered and said, hey, you're too enthusiastic about this, all right? But he said, we need to go overseas. That such an attitude is inconceivable, I know, today for us to think to not go into foreign fields. But uh, the subsequent efforts of that young man have been carried into the modern mission movement where this gentleman has been referred to as the father of missions. His name, William Carey. William Carey. Now, now I was thinking, have you ever, uh, young people, college students, you might apply for your first job or whether you have already or whatever, as you, as you work your wank, ranks, as you work your way, wanks, I don't know that word, but as you work your way through life, different jobs will call for different levels of character, okay? And and you'll get this at some point in your life probably. Hey, describe yourself, okay? Give Give me five words to describe you. This is your chance to brag or this is your chance to be humble or whatever, but tell me five words. Could you think of five words to describe you? You know, I don't know what the car ride was like for your family here, but your wife might have five words to describe you right now. I don't know that. But, but, but what are five words that people would maybe say that describe you or, or that you would describe yourself? And I find that interesting because that's how I want to attack um, getting to know William Carey a little bit, because maybe that doesn't ring anything to you or get you excited per se. But, but I think if we put him into words, it will. Well, one, he was a shoemaker, okay? And and in doing so, grew up in humble means, highly educated, but I love this first quote. I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. Could you say that's true of yourself? There are many people who can start a project but can't finish them. There's people who get excited about things and then it wanes. But, but William Carey said, I'm a determined guy. I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. Are you easy? Are you quick to give up? Are, are, would you be known as a quick to quit person? William Carey was a determined person. He can plod. Okay, here's my second word for William Carey. Courageous, okay, courageous. Um, He says, I'm not afraid of failure. Listen to this. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. 
It was that man who applied in this group of leaders to give them an essay on the inquiry of missions and why they should go overseas to reach others for the gospel, strategically for him to go to India where he would serve as a missionary. He was courageous. I'm not afraid of failure, he says. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Can I ask that question, inspired by William Carey? Are you successful at things that don't matter? I was talking to a brother in Christ this week who, um, who doesn't know how much time he has left on earth, to be perfectly honest with you. And he said, you know what, Chris? There's only two things I can take with me, my faith and my family. I wanna be successful at things, but I wanna make sure I can be successful at things that actually matter. That was William Carey, and that was his passion to reach the lost. The third word, let's go resilient. He was resilient. Um, India was tough. When he got there, it was harder than he could ever imagine, and in poverty quickly hit the family. He had a large family, and tragedy also hit. They lost their five-year-old son on the mission field. In fact, if you study out Carrie a little bit, you'll see that his wife, it kind of turned the tables for her and she struggled with some severe mental illness uh, to the point where it really damaged the entire family and the struggle that they went through. And um, he writes in his journal, I am in a strange land, no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. I mean, he seems to be in a spot where, where he's in a tough spot and he's gotta be resilient and he's gotta fight through it. But he realized he's put his family in a very difficult place. India was hard. In fact, one of the things that really bothered him was some of the things that were going on within the country. Um, he actually worked on a lot of social reform. There, there were, as a belief in their religious systems that when a husband died, the wife had no real extrinsic value of her own. And so he would die, they'd burn him, and the wives would jump on top of them alive and be burnt to death. It was called widow burning. And uh, William Carey was one of the first people to say, uh, uh, we need to stop that, okay? Um, the other was actually infants being thrown into rivers to gods and uh, believing that it would keep one and throw the other in. And William Carey was another part of social reform um, to protect that kind of behavior from going on. And, and why was he so resilient? Because William Carey was really known for his optimism. And this is his favorite and most famous quote. This is the quote that inspired the likes of Hudson Taylor to enter the mission field. It says this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. One of the tricks of the enemy, the devil, is to get you to think that God doesn't want to use you to do big things for him. Carrie was an optimist. And don't you want to follow an optimist? I mean, optimists make the great leaders. In fact, most great leaders are optimistic people. Seldom do you all get in line for, hey, we can do this. Or, or you get in line for, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it'll work out. We'll see. It didn't work out in the past. You're getting in line behind the optimist, right? And he says, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But one of the quotes that's gonna lead us into where we're going today is my fifth word for him, submissive. He said, to know the will of God, we need an open Bible and an open map. And I find that interesting. In other words, he's saying we need to increase our boundaries. Sometimes we limit ourselves. How about you? Do you do a search only in a 15-mile radius? What if God wanted to call you further than that? Are you willing to open the map, not just your heart, but open the map to God? 
And you might say, well, you know what, Chris? COVID's got me thinking. When this is all said and done, when things kind of get back to at least some resemblance of normal, I'm gonna do this instead. Or I, I don't know if I'm gonna stay where I am right now. Or I've been doing some soul searching. I hear a lot of that going on. And what a perfect time to talk about how God maneuvers us through our lives in such a way to not only bless other people, but to use us very specifically for him. And so before you end up grabbing your map and going on your journey, what if God has you right where you are for a very strategic purpose? I had a brother in Christ, very wise man, who said to me, Chris, with believers, there is no coincidence. God, God strategically places his children. And you may be where you are, even if it's difficult for this season. He may have something new for you, but I promise you this, he wants you in your current situation to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks, for that's his will for you. But there are times when he wants to maneuver you. And are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you keeping in step with the Spirit so that when he prompts, you'll follow? Well, that's the heartbeat of today's message. That's the story of Philip, the, the great evangelist, the deacon in the book of Acts, who we're gonna study today. And we're gonna call this sermon today Strategically Placed. Yes, yes, I have a chess piece there. And some of you may have noticed I have a chess table on my table today. It's actually a beautiful one. It's made of wood. It's handcrafted. It's gorgeous. Um, I got it up at revivals from a, a young man who had set up a table and was putting together awesome wood craftsmanship. And um, I, I got this because my youngest was really getting into chess for a while. And when your kids get into something you get into something, okay? I know what it's like to stand at the Strasbourg Railroad going, look, it's Thomas the Tank Engine. I know what it's like. I was just as enthusiastic as him, okay? And, and, and I know when you get into stuff, right? You get, I, I remember being up at 3 a.m. working on dollhouses Christmas Eve, okay? You do what your kids get excited about. Well, well, my youngest was getting excited about chess, and so I didn't really know much about chess, but I thought it'd be great to have a chess board in our basement. So, so we got this, and we got some chess pieces. Do you know anything about chess? I mean, this is a whole nother level than, than checkers, I mean, this is, some of you look at this and go, oh, I'm not really interested in that. It doesn't make sense to me, you know? I'm just gonna put these out, and I'm no chess expert, nor do I want to be. So don't hold me accountable. I'm gonna do my best here, okay? But you have your pawns, and they can move one space, sometimes two, off the get, um, but they can only attack on a diagonal. You have, you have your rooks. They can go side to side, but they can't go on angles, okay? You have your knights. They can go in L-shaped patterns. They can go up two over one or over two up one, and they're the only one that can go through another piece. You have your bishops, okay? They can go on angles, but I believe it's only they must stay on the same color. Then you have your queens, and they can go wherever they want, ladies. <laughs> See, you didn't know chess was for you. You're like, I'm interested. You didn't have me until that. Yeah, the queen, you can go wherever you want, man. You do whatever you want. Now, the king, he can go pretty much where he wants unless it's a place where he could be trapped. He can't enter into those territories. But knowing that each one of these pieces have their own strategy to them makes this game go to a whole nother level where you're not just on the current step. 
You're not on just the current step. You're on the next step and the next step. It's like the, the, games, the gamer or the chess player is ahead, wanting to stay ahead of the pieces because you have a plan and, and you want to take on more territory and you want to use these pieces to enhance your territory and ultimately win the day. And that is what you're going to see played out in the book of Acts chapter 8. Philip, Philip is going to be strategically maneuvered by God. And watch how he responds today. For anybody who goes, is it time for me to just move on? Is it time for me to quit? Is it time for me to go ahead? This is a message where you get to watch the Lord maneuver instead of go out and try to do it yourself. So before you fill out an angry resume because nobody appreciates you, before you storm off and say, I'm never coming back, before you act out as a way to show them what they're missing, step back and just ask yourself, is it possible that even in my moment of difficulty or struggle or concern, I'm strategically placed here for a very specific reason, that God's gonna maneuver me if he'd like, and may I stay patient waiting for him to move. Heavenly Father, use this text today to inspire us to stay in tune and in step with the Spirit. May we look at the life of Philip and say, I want to be like that. I want to be someone God can use. I do want to expect great things from God, and I want to do things for God. Use me, Lord. Maneuver me. Help me to be someone that you can entrust your great and awesome plan with. And for those out there today that aren't so quite sure, they're not sure if they can trust how you maneuver them. They're not sure if you have their best in mind. I pray today would be a reminder of the great and awesome God you are, the faithful God. And even despite all odds, you are faithful to us. And so, Lord, thank you for this message. Thank you for the life of Philip. May it inspire us as we pioneer into this unknown. Amen. Now, if you have your text, I want you to go to chapter 8. We've been there in the text. If you were with us last week, we found Philip where? In Samaria, okay? He ended up in the Samaria where the Samaritans were. Now the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds, disgusting, and, and, and there was racism within these two. Like you couldn't believe often because of linguistic or even because they felt they intermingled with races. They didn't want them to, and it was just a bad situation. Philip was called right into that. Okay. Now, this is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon who was chosen by the apostles when the choosing of the seven in Acts. Now, we have them out and about, and Philip is called into Samaria. And last week, we saw that he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And we remind ourselves of the geography of this, because Samaria seems to be above Jerusalem on the map. Every place they considered from Jerusalem was going down. It was a lower-level city at that time. And then second, um, it literally, geography was down. They would enter and leave the Jerusalem and head down. And so they often wrote that way, even though it appears up. So Philip goes there into Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel. And, and you remember what they said? Scripture said last week, they paid attention to them. I mean, Philip, is there anything greater than an audience paying attention to you? I've used this with youth pastors. I said, guys, Philip was preaching, and they paid attention to him. And they were like, wow. 
what's that like? You know, you could just see it on her eyes. And, and now, now listen, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher who has preached to both the youth crowds, children's crowds, adult crowds, senior crowds, there's really not much difference in whether people are listening or not. It's just that teenagers don't hide it. If they're not listening to you, they visibly show you they're not listening. Adults, they don't show you, they just kind of stare at you. And then there's adults who are trying to get work done while I'm preaching, because they're multitaskers, okay? And they can't even concentrate because they have seven things going on. So you can't guarantee just because someone's sitting there, they're actually listening. Some people, they can listen so well by doodling. They sit there drawing and they can hear everything and respond to everything. And so you don't fully know, but they were paying attention to Philip. Oh, they were listening to him. He was preaching, people were getting baptized. He was, oh, he's telling the world, this is going great. He's up there and, and, and this is what happens. An angel comes of the Lord and says to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. Now he's in Samaria, we believe, somewhere along here. There's a coastal highway along here. Down here is Egypt and Ethiopia, and that was considered the furthest part on earth. They didn't really have the globes and the maps. They didn't have your Google Earths and everything like that. And so they considered this to be a far and distant land, and they equated it with the desert or a barren place. In fact, Gaza can be often referred to as just a barren place. So Philip, he is up here in Samaria. He's preaching, teaching. I mean, even Simon the sorcerer is responding to the gospel and he's baptizing people and an angel of the Lord shows up and note this, note this, our author Luke wants you to be sure that you don't miss how interwoven God is into this story of directing Philip. He doesn't want you to miss it so he keeps pointing out how God is in charge of these strategic movements he's making. So an angel appears to Philip and says, I want you to go down to Gaza, this is a desert place. And he arose and went. You know what stood out to me in that whole thing? Five words that describe Philip. Five words. You ready? I'm gonna read them for you. And he rose and Complete faithfulness to God. You say, I'm not, I'm not, help me out, Chris. Okay, for anybody who's ever spoke, led a group of people, when things are going well in ministry, you don't really want God to call you to a place where there's not many people. Why is Philip not going, wait a minute, God, you understand we are killing it in Samaria. I mean, I speak and they pay attention. It's awesome. They're like, <gasps> and then they respond and I'm baptizing people. The things are going great. God, everything's going great. I want you to go to a desert place. Why? You say, well, Chris, are you reading into that? How many times can I point to you in scripture? People arguing with God's call. A lot. Moses, Jonah. I can show you instant after instant where scripture exposes God's people arguing with him about where he's sending him. Philip, and he rose and went. I want to be a Philip. But, 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 but God, God, God. And he rose and went. Write that down in your notes. I don't know if we need much more. When God asks us to do something, can it be said of us, and he and she rose and went. 
You know, I heard an illustration of this dog who had been faithful to his owner. It was quite a sad account for the dog had died in the forest. You say, why? Well, the story goes on to talk about how the owner, talking to another man about the dog, said he was such a faithful dog and he was trained so well, I told him to stay with my pack, stay with my food, and I went off. Well, a forest fire had started, and I wasn't able to get back to him. But when I got back from the fire and I saw the remains of my stuff that had been burned, and obviously him that had been burned, he stayed by my backpack like I asked him to. He said, I had to be so careful with what I asked him to do because he listened to everything I said. Could that be said of your faith with God? God, does God, does God gotta be a little careful with you because you're gonna do everything he says? God is careful with us. And when he strategically moves us, he has our best in mind. And I believe those who see the most out of God and see God mostly in their lives are the ones who it is said of them, and they rose and they went. They didn't argue, they didn't fight with him, they didn't justify why they didn't wanna listen. They went and he went and there and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. We got a lot of information information here. So let's begin to unpack it. He's from Ethiopia, the furthest place on earth. So he must be a Gentile. Second, he's a eunuch, which means he was a government official, most likely celibate or castrated. That's why they were often referred to as eunuchs. I would go into that, but it's painful to talk about. But, but it means that they are not able to reproduce. They did this specifically so that they wouldn't reproduce with court officials or royal people and interfere with the means to the crown. And so they were dedicated servicemen of this Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was extravagantly wealthy, and he's in charge of her treasure, which means he has access to a great amount of means. Have you ever been around someone who would be referred to as a bigwig? This is such. This is an important figure. This is someone who is heading through this area and, and, and Luke wants us to see that the Gentiles are being targeted here by God, and you're gonna see as this Ethiopian moves along, God has a plan in place, and he's gonna maneuver towards it and make sure that this goes how he would like it to. And so he came to Jerusalem, this eunuch, to worship there and was returning. So that's interesting. He was pilgrimaging to, to Jerusalem. So he wants to know about this Yahweh, okay? And, and he's in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now hold up for a minute. He was reading the prophet Isaiah? He had the scroll of Isaiah? How did he get his hands? I mean, this wasn't like, hey, pick up a scroll of Isaiah on your way out. You had to be a person of extreme means and extreme know about and have extreme connections to have a copy of the scroll of the Isaiah scroll in your hands. Is it possible, is it possible that he is bringing this back to Candace and she wants this scroll? Is it possible, he's curious, and is it possible he's diving in a little bit early before he gets back with this? I mean, all you guys can speak to this that have ever gone and picked up a pizza for the family, right? 
You get two pizzas for the family, you, you, you stand in line, you, you, get, you put down the car seat next to you, and you go to drive home and you think, there's really no reason. I shouldn't make sure it's good for the kids. You know. There's really no reason I should start. In fact, I was talking to a few guys after the service that said, no doubt. There's one's going down, at least one's going down. I said, there's been times I've justified. I mean, I'm one the, I am the one who drove over and got it, you know, after all. I think I paid for it. I deserve a slice. And you start, and you start wanting to eat it and, it, and you rush it, and you burn the top of your mouth. You're all upset, and, and, but, but you're excited because you got that slice of pizza. And if you really feel bad about starting too soon, you get done the breadsticks. But, but either way. We all know what it's like to kind of just, I can't wait, I can't wait. I just wonder, can he just not wait? And he starts getting into this. And, and, and look, look, God's maneuvering these chess pieces again, okay? And, and he's maneuvering them. So you've got this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's reading the scroll, okay? And the spirit said to Philip, there's Luke again. He wants you to know God's driving this. Go over and join this chariot. And, and so Philip ran to him. Okay, I'm trying to picture this. We've got this chariot going by, and Philip hears the spirit say, go over and join his chariot, and, and Philip, Philip does this. All right. You ever notice adults don't really run? Have you ever noticed that? Kids run. Kids are like running, you know. Adults don't run. If adults are running, something's usually wrong. Okay, or they don't like their weight and they went to a gym. That's the only reason they're ever running, right? So for someone to run, there has to be extreme enthusiasm. I have to be excited for me to be running. Now, my wife might make fun of me because there are times where I'm out walking in front of the family because I'm excited, but it's a walk. It's not a run. God says, the Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, go over and join this chariot. And Philip doesn't say, well, you know, he's kind of a big deal, God. I don't know if he wants me. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, I've approached chariots before. It's a no-go usually. He runs to him. Let me use five words to describe Philip. So Philip ran to him. Wow. Think about the obedience. Think about the immediate obedience. You know, we were talking about William Carey and how he was in India. Have you ever seen the snakes that are in India? Phew. I, I'm not a big fan of snakes, and I'm being nice to snakes when I say that. But have you ever seen an Indian, an India python? They're enormous. You know they can grow to 32 feet long Imagine that being on the floor in this place. Nobody would be still right now. We'd all be running adults, right? I mean, and, and these things were huge. Well, there's a story that comes out of a, a mission, uh, a missionary that I believe I heard back in college at a, at a conference. I can't remember when this story got me, but it, it kind of grabbed me. It, it was an illustration of a mother who was sharing that on the field, we knew our kids could possibly endanger if they got too far from the house because of the wildlife that was surrounding us as we were ministering in our foreign country. Well, she explained that there was a time where her son was out playing underneath a tree innocently with his trucks. And she went outside and she had seen above him on the tree a python coiling itself towards her son. She yelled to her son, run to me now. 
he dropped his truck and he sprinted to her as it descended, missing him. And that missionary went on to tell that very silent audience, when God asks you to do something, you do it now. You don't wait. You don't hesitate. You trust that when he's calling your name, he's saving you from something that could hurt you. And when you have that kind of God, you run when he says move. There was no, run. Why, mom? I don't want to run. Get over here now, but I'm playing trucks. Get here now. I'll give you to the count of four to avoid a python. <laughs> now that boy had been set up. Look, if we tell you, watch out, come. And so there was some preparation, but that immediate obedience, if you want to know what kind of guy Philip was, so Philip ran to him. Five words. This was an obedient faithful follower of God. And scripture continues. Philip ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He hears him reading. I'm like, why would he, anybody like, why is he, why is he reading out? Why is he reading out loud? <laughs> well, see, if you understand something about the ancients, um, there weren't sentences and your pretty little punctuations, okay? There weren't periods, there weren't spaces, and so often when they had scrolls, they would read out loud to try to make sense of it because when they would talk, they could hear it. And this is most likely, he's most likely reading a translation of the Septuagint of the Isaiah scroll. And he's reading this and he's reading out loud. Philip hears him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And, and he, says, he says, how can I unless someone guides me? Well, if this is not a fat pitch, Philip, to talk about the scriptures with somebody, I don't know what is. Every mom or dad knows that they've ever thrown a pitch to their little kid. You practically are throwing the ball at the bat. Come on, hit it. And they, they take their ugly swings, you know, you know. And you're like, no, dude, ready, ready? And you're like, come on, can I hit the bat for them? Bang, okay. I mean, you're, you're making it that easy. And say, I remember being a little league coach and, and working with little kids and, 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 and they would be, no, they, they'd swing, you know, and they'd swing, no, no, focus, folks, pull your hands up here. Okay, okay, we had one kid, he started literally standing on the plate like this towards the pitcher. No, no, buddy, right here, stand like this. Okay, and, and, and Philip, you have been thrown a fat pitch, hit it. How can I, unless someone guides me? And see, this is a neat little transition. Can we jump over here to just like a, a seminary class for like three minutes? Because really, guiding people through scripture is one of the things that I get most excited about in life. So if you're not excited about this part, here's your chance to check on something else. But if you are, just tune in with me for a second. Because there's nothing cooler than studying the Bible. Unfortunately, it's been presented in such a way sometimes where it does come across boring. But the Bible's so awesome to study. And interpreting scripture or making sense of what it says is one of the joys of reading the Bible. So let me be excited about it even if you're not. This is called hermeneutics, okay? That's a really big word that basically means interpreting or making sense or meaning of the scriptures. There's kind of three basic categories, okay? When you open your Bible, there's three ways that you can kind of, this is a little bit just a, a tour of inductive Bible study, okay? Three ways, observation, interpretation, and application, okay? Observation is simply that. You open it, read it, and see what you see. You go, I don't know, Chris. I mean, I open the Bible, and I start reading it, and I'm like, 
I know I'm supposed to do this, okay? Like mom thinks it's cool. Um, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Ah, whatever, okay? You know, and, 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 you, and you struggle, like what is it? But this is what observation does. You gotta ask yourself questions. This is how I prepare a sermon. This is how I prepare a sermon. When I get into a text, I go, who? Who's writing this? Who's writing this, okay? Um, what is it trying to communicate or what's my audience? Who's the audience? Okay, are the Jews the audience? Is this a Gentile audience? Is this the disciples? Is this the church? What's the audience? Why? Why did the author write this? What was the intent of the author when the author was doing this? Well, when? When is this written? Let me get some historical background to this. I wanna know when this is written. What was the context of when it was written? Where? Where? I see in pictures, so I like to throw up maps for you guys because it helps me get my head around it, okay? What are we doing? Where are we at, Gaza? Where is Gaza? When I see Gaza, I'm like, okay, I can get my hands around this a little bit. And then how? How am I supposed to apply this to my life? And during observation, some of the things I do is I look for keywords. What are some keywords? Last week in my observation, I saw paid attention, paid attention, paid attention. Built the sermon around paid attention. Okay, it was just a key word I saw. How about commands? Do I see any commands? You should do this or you should do this. How about promises? Any repetitive statements, things that keep happening and keep happening? And then, hey, flat out, your own questions. If I'm like, what is that about? You probably have the same question I have. And so when I'm doing observation, I ask these questions. And so when I'm reading, I've got like a boatload of questions and I want to get them answered. I'm curious. I want to find out. That's observation. Step two, though, this is a little bit of study, and this is why we shouldn't be novices with handling the word of God, especially if we're given platforms. It's interpretation, okay? Now, how I interpret scripture, and you know this about me if you've been here any length of time, is I take a literal, historical, and grammatical approach, okay? What's that mean? Well, a literal approach is what is the clear and obvious meaning of the text. In other words, Jesus meant what he said, okay? Historical how does culture impact this, or what was going on? And then grammatical, how do I define these words to give me deeper meaning? Well, let me jump down under the step of interpretation and just kind of point out what I mean by literal historical. Literal interpretation, okay, literal interpretation, Jacob wrestled with God. Now, if I take that just figuratively or allegorically, I would say things like, well, like Jacob, we all have wrestled with God. No, a literal interpretation, Jacob wrestled with God. Okay, so Jacob wrestled with God, yeah. Now, I could use some application and go, like Jacob, have you ever wrestled with God? But we haven't wrestled with him as Jacob did, a literal interpretation. The only time it's not literal is when it's obviously metaphorical or it's figurative. What are some examples of figurative? God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Okay, that doesn't mean oh, God owns a cattle in a thousand, but not like 1,500, it's only a thousand. No, it's figurative. He owns everything, okay? But 70 times seven, we're told in scripture. That doesn't mean we're supposed to forgive 490 times and then stop, okay? That means continue to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. This is my body broken for you. Clearly figurative language, not to be taken. Literally, Jesus didn't lay on the table and break his body for them. Okay, so we know when it's obviously figurative, otherwise we take a literal interpretation of scripture. Now, why does this play out? Well, look at this. Let me go to the grammat uh, historical level. Somebody says, well, I only take it literally and I will only take it literally what the book says it means. Okay, I said, why didn't you greet me with a holy kiss then? This is a command in scripture. Greet one another with a holy kiss. First of all, don't you dare greet me. <laughs> Now, when you understand history, 
You understand that this was part of a culture, that that's how they greeted one another, and America's equivalent, well, it used to be, was a welcoming handshake. That's the equivalent of such, and that's why we don't necessarily take that literal because, well, we take it literally, but we add the historical, and it gives us deeper meaning. Let me go one more level down than historical. Let's go to grammatical. Stay with me. When you understand what a word means, it makes your devotional life come to life. For example, teach your children these things. You know the word teach underneath that? Okay, this is Deuteronomy in Hebrew. So when you get down into the root word of teach, you find it means to sharpen or continually sharpen like a knife. So the idea here is not, I taught my kids the Bible like four years ago. We're done now. It's continually sharpen, sharpen. Sharpen, I can plod, I can plod, sharpen, sharpen. And then when you get the grammatical understanding, you start to understand more things about scripture. You see a word like baptize, which comes from baptizo, which is a transliteration, or in other words, the word sounds like it, of the Latin word meaning immerse. And you build practices of a church around it, especially a Baptist church. Why do you immerse? Because the word baptizo means to immerse. The grammatical meaning helps us with words like amen. When you turn on your TV and you see things like amen and a woman, you don't go, you go, what? what? Amen means to agree, to say, so be it. It has nothing to do with male or female. And you begin to look at the world a little bit differently when you've actually read this thing and you studied this thing. And young people, we need more scholars of the word of God out there, more people passionate about the word of God. And I'm sorry that we have presented at times boring or, or, or weird or, or uninterested. There's nothing that bothers me more. I'm gonna get on a message here. I gotta be careful. There's nothing that bothers me more when somebody grabs this Bible and is like, okay, turn in the word of God too. Are you kidding me? This is the word of God. These are the words of life. This is the most exciting thing you can possibly read. And isn't it awesome? Anybody who's lived for a little bit of time, you can read a passage. I've preached over a thousand sermons. I've got over a thousand sermons in my files. I can read texts of passages I've preached multiple times and get something new out of it. Have you ever had that? I'm like, I've never, I've never seen that. And that's the beauty of Bible study. And that's why we should be excited about the word of God. And, and, and this guy goes, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And Philip's like, oh, give me that bat. And he goes up to him and, 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 he, and he continues. But right before we do that, I wanna show you this last part because it gets advanced sometimes. You can get it. Oh, no, go back, go back. We'll do this. We can get into context. Always remember when you're reading the scripture, context is king. Someone come up to you and say, Chris, the Bible says there is no God, Psalm 14, one. And I would say to you, that is what it says. That is true. What, but is that statement consistent with the author, David? Is that statement consistent with David? No, he believed there was a God. Is this statement consistent with scripture? No, the Bible internally says there's God. Is this statement consistent with its context? Actually, no, Psalm 14, one says, the fool says in his heart. There is no God. And that's why you gotta be careful too because you might even see preachers, they take half of the verse and make a whole message around half of a verse. You gotta be very careful that we're pushing the context of that verse because trust me, you can make the Bible say what you want it to say. I can find you a preacher for almost any belief you wanna have. And so you gotta be very careful with some of those things. And then, and then finally, a little more advances than even though genre. In Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, come on, the Bible's wrong. There's stuff new under the sun. 
But when you study this, you find that this genre is poetry. This is cynical language from, the, from Solomon, written in prose, okay? And so when you're in poetry, Job, Job Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms, Solomon, it's written differently than per se prophecy, which is always forward thinking, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, or the epistles where you have to watch out. Because sometimes the commands are global for the corporate church, not just for the individual. So there's so many different aspects of God's word to get excited about and be leading through. And then, then finally and finally, application. You know, one of the things we work with with younger speaker, preacher, preachers and speakers is always it's like, I, I shared the text, but I, I, I struggle with application. Well, here's a little leadership hack, and it's not mine, okay? Here's a little pastor hack. So if you're a teacher out there, you write devotionals or something, you're gonna like this, okay? Here's a little hack on how to get application out of anything. It's based on an acronym, and it's not my acronym. Space pets. You say, what? Yeah. You can read any text, do your study, do your observation, and then go to space pets. Here's what I mean. Is there a sin to confess? Is there a promise to claim in this passage? Is there an attitude that needs to change? Is there a command I should obey? Is there an example here for me to follow? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a truth to believe or for some reason for praise? And when I ask these questions, it'll lead to application which inspires us to want to live out the text. Yeah, there's a promise to claim in that passage. You bet there's a sin to confess. I have to change my attitude about that. I saw some commands to obey. And then you start working towards application. So, observation, what do we see? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what should we do? How can I, unless someone guides me? And Philip, Philip comes over to him. He ran, runs over to him, which I would not suggest as evangelism technique. Okay, don't run to people. Okay, don't be like, well, I wanna run like Philip. I mean, I love that application. So Philip ran to him. I had a, I had a brother here, he's on our, he's on our deacon board. Um, we were talking after church a couple weeks back. He said, hey, Chris, you know, you ever need firewood? I was like, well, I do have a chimney. I would take some firewood, definitely. Someday, if you're ever chopping something up, I would love that firewood, yeah. That night around five o'clock, that Sunday night around five o'clock, a truck's backing up into my driveway, loaded with firewood. I said, I, I, I didn't mean tonight. He came up to me last week. He goes, Chris, you're getting close to Philip in the Ethiopian. I said, yeah. He goes, my favorite passage. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, when I was a young man, I heard that passage and I heard, and so Philip ran. And I wanted to be the type of leader when God was leading me to do something, I did follow through. I did say what I wanted to do and did it. I wanted to be known for running to them. And he does. And if you guys know Brad Ely, you know how he runs to help people. And, and he was such a testimony. I want to be someone who runs. That's great. I wouldn't suggest it. Like if I'm like, hey, did you ever share Christ with him? Yeah, hold on. They're going to be like, all right, get away from me. Okay, I would be like that. And I mean, I, I mean we don't want to be known as a church that runs at people. I think that's kind of scary. Don't go to that church. They run at you. But the idea is, don't hesitate. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer, it's silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Isaiah scroll, forward thinking, prophecy text, 
like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. We're speaking towards something forward. What is it, church? He's speaking of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he took this Old Testament passage, and he told him the good news about Jesus. And that's the final thing I wanted to point about Philip. Five words. Then Philip opened his mouth. Then Philip opened his mouth. I dare you to ask the Lord to give you a chance to share the gospel with somebody this week. You say, dare? What? I'm in church. Why would you say dare? Because he's going to give you an opportunity. The question will be, then Chris opened his mouth. Do I want to share? Philip did. And he took his opportunities. Oh, watching little kids stand there sometimes in fear. Strike one. Strike two. He ain't gonna hit. You hear some kid call out from the other side. Strike three. Their head goes down, their helmet's too big. They turn around and the bat's still on their shoulders. They're walking towards you. Hey, man, hey, man, hey, man. If we're gonna strike out, let's at least go down swinging. They shake their head. Next time they get in there, strike one. They look back at you. <sighs> Two, three. Come big catcher, gets up, knocks him over, throws it down to third. But then one day, they hit the pitch. And then three years later, they're hitting pitches and pointing to the heavens and thinking they're the greatest thing on earth. It goes quick. <laughs> Philip took the swing because he was courageous. And as they were going along the road, he came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot, stop! And they both went down in the water and Philip and the eunuch and they baptized him. And they came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord, whoa, carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went away rejoicing. What's going on here? told you this is Acts, and things happen in Acts that don't happen in the rest of Scripture. And I pray you stay with us in our series so we can find out what more goes on in the book of Acts. But let's take a moment and talk about this Philip. Five words that describe him. And he rose and went. He's faithful to the call of God, and he goes and does what God asks him to do. He opens his map, if you will, and goes where he leads. So Philip ran to him. He was obedient. He was immediately obedient to God's call. Then Philip opened his mouth. Five words that describe you. Philip was a courageous pioneer. Some of you are going to see snow tonight, tomorrow. I had a professor tell me one time, you know how to keep in step with the spirit in your life? It's not as complicated as you think. It's staying in the word of God. It's staying away from things that are sin, and it's leaning in towards the things that are him. There's a passage in scripture that says to keep in step with the spirit. 
He said, my dad would get out in front of me and he'd walk towards the driveway to plow or to shovel and his big feet would go through the snow. He goes, and I was just a little guy, but I knew I could walk through any depth of snow if I could just get my feet in my dad's steps. And I'd stay in his steps. And that's how I get to my desired destination. It's been a living illustration for me every time it snows to stay and step with the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, Galatians chapter five, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, like do not, do not. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. There's no, hey, 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 stop it. You're being way too patient. Hey, knock it off. That was a little too gentle. I don't wanna hear that again. Hey, quit being so faithful. We don't need all this faithfulness. There's no law against those things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified that flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. But let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us not get in the way of pioneering as we stay in step with the Spirit. All of us in our lives have times where we go, should I do this? Should I not do this? We go through seasons in our life where we go, God, God, I've been doing this. I've been doing this move for a long time. I just want to know when's the next move. I want to do big things. I want to expect great things. I, I, I mean, I feel like I make a move and then this person makes a move or I make, they make a move and then I got to backtrack. Well, God, I, I, I want to know what's the next move. It reminds me of an old rock song, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Should I stay or should I go? Let me just give you some walk out of here application if you're going through that season of your life. I think everybody does at some point. Don't quit during these times, okay? Do not quit because, okay? Do not quit because you feel it's too difficult. Young person, let me help you out in life. Wherever you go, there's gonna be something that's difficult. There is no job where you love every aspect of it. Don't quit because you think it's too difficult. You'll just go to another place and it'll be too difficult there before long. Don't quit because you feel underappreciated. Oh, that's the devil's fastball. He wants you to feel underappreciated. He wants you to make a rash decision based on frustration and anger and envy that you're not being recognized. Watch out for that one. That's not a time. Do not quit because you feel it will satisfy resentment you know what, I'm gonna stick it to them. They'll see how much I'm needed. I'll walk out here, let's see them handle that. That's resentment in your heart. That's not the time to quit anything. Do not quit because you feel under too much pressure. Life is pressure. 
There's pressure to anything. And often pressure exists because you lack discipline somewhere in your life. You will find the more you discipline yourself, the less pressure is on you because you gave yourself margin. People walking around this world without margin have extreme pressure on them and they need to add discipline into their life to release some of that pressure. Oftentimes I have found when I'm feeling under pressure, it's because I have grown undisciplined in an area of my life. Don't quit because you feel defeated and overwhelmed. You might walk away from something you dearly love because you're not emotionally stable enough right now to make a decision. They say if you're ever struggling with any of the symptoms of burnout, not the time to make a rash decision. Just stay put, relax for now, and trust the Lord will move you when it's time. Do not quit because you feel like things will never change. Things are always changing. Ask 2020. Things change. They often say, oh, winners never quit. That's baloney. Winners quit all the time. They just know how to quit, when to quit, and what to quit. And so they don't quit really, they exit. How, how do I know if it's time to exit? There's some signs. Exit, but only after you've found you've lost your passion. Okay? Make sure you've lost your passion for the thing and you're not just picked off. Nobody's listening to me. That's not the time. When you realize your excitement is elsewhere, I'm just always excited about that. I'm always excited about that. All my energy I want to put towards that. Exit, but only after you verify a lack of a path forward for you. There's nowhere to go for me in this. I don't even know if it. Have you clarified that? Have you verified that before you're making this decision? Exit, but only after you've received affirmation from wise counsel who's outside the box. If people are inside going, yeah, you should be, you gotta listen to somebody who's outside going, man, I don't think it's the time. But I want to, you're, I don't think it's the time. Exit, but only after you see an obvious replacement exists. You will not like it if you do something out of resentment. And you'll notice this about leaving. I just read this recently in a leadership journal. Nobody forget, everybody forgets what you did, but they always remember how you left. <laughs> I thought about that. Part of your legacy will be left if you do not leave a, a replacement. And then finally, ensure a respectful exit strategy. And respect's a two-way street. If you want respect, you have to offer respect. And so ensure a respectful strategy. There are times to exit, but only after these things. It's one of the paths. I've been storing these up. I've been working through this. Um, these are not just mine. I've collected all this. Um, but I hope there's some practical applications on whether you're feeling it's time to be maneuvered to a different place. Think through some of those things. Okay, as we leave. As an exercise for you. One more slide, please. What five words would describe you? What five words? This is car conversation, couch conversation. If you're sitting by yourself, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to go find somebody. What five words would describe you? And then this. If you trust the person that's giving you your five words, that they dearly love you, and you're crying at word three, okay? Jerk, oh, I hate this, I hate, no, no. You may learn something about yourself if you ask someone you love, give me five words to describe me. And then, make it a passion this year to get more pioneer words in there. And you might just find a path that gets in step with the Spirit. Because don't we all want to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God? 
Well, then we're gonna have to submissively, obediently, faithfully allow him to strategically place us. And you might be in a spot that you don't particularly like, but Philip was willing to go to that desert place. And in that desert place came one of the greatest conversions of all scripture. So just because it's bad doesn't mean something great is about to happen. Hang on. Hang on in that desert place. Watch what God might just want to do if you are strategically placed in that spot. Heavenly Father, use this pioneer to inspire us to get in your word, to stay close to you in prayer, and to submit our lives, open our map, if you will. God, if it's a desert place, come with me. I'm gonna need you. God, if it's a place of fountains and wonderful water, may I be sure to thank you. God, if it's a place of hurt, would you hold me? God, if it's a place of bewilderment and lack of understanding, would you guide me? But Lord, when you ask me to do something, may I rise and go. When you tell me to go somewhere, may I run to it. And when you ask me to speak for you, may I open my mouth. And in doing so, I might just get to see great things from you. Thank you, Lord, for using us, even sometimes when we don't do those things. And Lord, may we be inspired today to leave here differently, asking you to direct us. We're your chess pieces, Lord, but use us to do great things for you. And we believe you will. In this we pray, amen.